You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The U.S. government expands its investigation into Pulse Secure VPN compromises. Microsoft discloses its discovery of bad ALEC IoT and OT vulnerabilities. Someone's distributing Purple Lambert spyware. Chinese intelligence services seem to be backdooring the Russian defense sector. Financially motivated criminals are exploiting SonicWall VPN vulnerabilities. A look at emerging criminal markets for deepfakes. Josh Ray from Accenture Security on why cybersecurity community service matters. Our guest, Manish Gupta from Shift Left, looks at cyber attacks on the CICD pipeline. And the World Health Organization attracted impersonators early this month. Again. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, April 30th, 2021. The U.S. government's investigation into possible compromises accomplished through vulnerabilities in Pulse Secure VPN software is expanding. CNN reports that at least five federal agencies appear to have been affected. This represents the third major software supply chain compromise that's come to light in 2021, the Voice of America notes. Microsoft yesterday announced a set of memory allocation vulnerabilities they're tracking as bad alloc. The vulnerabilities affect IoT and OT devices, and they could be exploited either for remote code execution or to induce system crashes. CISA has also published mitigation advice for bad alloc. The disclosure of bad alloc should lend some urgency to the OT security, about which NSA cautioned the defense industrial base in yesterday's advisory. That advice was prompted by the SolarWinds compromise, but the concerns are broadly applicable to OT operators. Kaspersky says it's detected purple Lambert malware in a number of networks, ITWire reports that this malware family has been associated with the CIA, but the evidence is ambiguous, with some observers pointing out that the malware may have been staged by rival foreign intelligence services. The Lambert family has been gurgling around out there for a few years. We're accustomed to thinking of cyber espionage as hitting, for the most part, Western targets— The reality is, of course, far more complicated than that. Even the familiar adversaries of Western nations take whacks at one another. A useful corrective to this habitual way of thinking arrives today in the form of a report by researchers at security firm Cyber Reason who describe a new APT they attribute to the Chinese government. 
The company's Nocturnus team, while sorting through samples of Royal Road malware, found signs that the operators behind it were also delivering the port door backdoor as a payload. The target was Russian, and the method of approach was phishing. Nocturnus researchers write, quote, According to the phishing lore content examined, the target of the attack was a general director working at the Russian Design Bureau, a Russian-based defense contractor that designs nuclear submarines for the Russian Federation's Navy. End quote. And, of course, while VPN exploits have recently been a worry because of the way they've appeared in cyber espionage campaigns, as so often happens, the hoods follow in the footsteps of the spooks, which is what seems to be going on now with exploitation of unpatched SonicWall instances. FireEye warned yesterday that it's observed an aggressive financially motivated group, UNC2447, exploiting one SonicWall VPN zero-day vulnerability. The company reckons the threat a serious one, with evidence of tool-sharing by criminal groups. Researchers at security firm Recorded Future have discerned a growing international criminal market for deepfakes. Why do people care about this? It's easy to think of deepfakes as primarily used in more exotic forms of spoofing, say a faked video of President Putin doing celebratory jello shots with First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, thereby convincing people that the whole New Deal thing was a Kremlin front from the get-go, and never mind the freaking anachronism. Sad. Or perhaps they could appear in the form of faked evidence used in criminal show trials. Or, in a more prosaic level, they might be used for more effective social engineering, better and more convincing business email compromises, for example, or more compelling catfishing. But there are also other, even more prosaic concerns about deepfakes. A criminal market in such deceptive stuff might undercut commonly used modes of establishing one's identity. Traditionally, people have seen three basic ways of establishing that they are who they say they are. You can do this through something you know, and the most common form this takes is the password. The security question is another. If you know your grandmother's maiden name was Fifinella, or that your first pet was Blinky the Chameleon or Finnegan the Goldfish, that you drove a Hillman Minx when you were in school, the assumption is that, well, you're probably who you say you are. You can also do this through something you have, like a hardware token, or in real life, maybe an ID card or a badge. Or finally, you could establish your identity through something you are, that is, through one of the several biometric modalities, like your face, your fingerprint, or even your gait. So, something you know, something you have, or something you are. One of the reasons a criminal market in deepfakes is troubling is that it might be used to undercut the third mode of identification, who you are. This could erode trust in the biometric technologies that organizations use online. If your fake face is out there, well, maybe some hood can use it to sign on somewhere as you, your own self. Deepfakes are, in the view of Recorded Future's Insect Group, fraud's next frontier. They used to be a repellent, but in most respects, less threatening kind of technology. The researchers say, quote, Deepfake technology used maliciously has migrated away from the creation of pornographic-related content to more sophisticated targeting that incorporates security bypassing and releasing misinformation and disinformation. Publicly available examples of criminals successfully using visual and audio deepfakes highlights the potential for all types of fraud or crime, including blackmail, identity theft, and social engineering. End quote. 
The researchers found online markets catering especially to Anglophone and Russophone hoods, but they also found a few hawking to speakers of Spanish, Turkish, and Chinese. The deepfake products and services on offer include editing both pictures and video, how-to tips, tutorials, exchanges of best practices, free software downloads and photo generators, and news on advancing criminal technology. The Insect Group says that much of the chatter online about deepfakes is of a relatively benign, technophile nature. People interested in the topic are chatting and swapping stories. But the researchers think that this is likely to turn ugly, as a hobbyist's interest turns into a perception that deepfakes have a lot of criminal potential. The United Nations International Computing Center says that, with the help of Group IB, it's taken down a scam campaign that since April 7th has been impersonating the World Health Organization. Good for them, we say. Earlier this month, Group IB warned the UN organization that it had found a bogus website impersonating WHO branding, where visitors were encouraged to answer a few simple questions to earn a 200 euro reward on the occasion of World Health Day. And you can easily imagine the rest. Sometimes it involved redirection to a scam website, and at other times the capers signed unwitting victims up for a paid service. Not healthy. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. A key component of modern DevOps operations is the CICD pipeline. That stands for Continuous Integration, Continuous Delivery. It's an approach that emphasizes automation. Manish Gupta is CEO of Shift Left, and he joins us with insights on the CICD pipeline and how its use can help ensure security receives the attention it deserves. All around us, innovation is being driven by software. Most of the companies now write software. They write it ever faster uh, because as end consumers, we have gotten into the habit of getting new feature functionality every day. Imagine your experience with Netflix or Google for that matter. The production of this software is a complex undertaking. It uh, goes through what is called CICD, continuous integration, continuous deployment, which is a fancy way of saying that is 
the set of technologies that allow developers to develop quickly. Mm. Uh, the other part is, you know, developers don't, uh, the other reason why developers are able to do this far faster today than they were able to do this a decade ago is because there's a lot of uh, what is called open source software or libraries that are out there. And so as a developer, for example, if I wanted to create a retail e-commerce site, I don't need to go rewrite the software for a shopping cart. You know, a library is available that I can just import into my application and voila, now I have that functionality. So being able to choose these various libraries for the end result that I want makes developers very productive. That broader notion is called the supply chain of software. Uh, in terms of what all components developers are using to create that application. You know, it strikes me that the the CI/CD pipeline is is kind of like changing the oil in your car while the engine is running. Um, <laughs> you know that that it, it just uh, there's a certain amount of uh, complexity there, um, and, a, and a, I don't know. And, and it, it, are we taking away developers' ability to kind of stop and catch their breath? Uh, well, you are right, uh, but I think the the situation is a little bit more complex or involved, if I may, mm. uh, because you know developers are compensated for delivering functionality. Very rarely is there an organization that compensates or measures uh, their developers on how securely they're developing the software, and that is part of the problem, because the responsibility of security lies in a different team, which is typically headed by the CISO or cyber security officer. And within his or her domain is an application security team who has the responsibility. So as you can see, uh, there, there is a almost a perverse logic. We incent developers to write features that were faster and we don't measure or reward them on delivering security effectively. And so they're not necessarily motivated to focus on security. There is a completely different team, which is, but then they don't develop software. And so all they can do is sort of inspect the software occasionally, find issues in it, and inform developers to say, hey, look, here's a long list of 100 things that are wrong. Please go fix it. And again, we have to go through the same uh, scenario where developers now have that list of 100 things plus all the other feature functionality that they've been asked to deliver by their VP of engineering. And is it any surprise they almost always focus on the latter as opposed to the former? And so what do you recommend here in terms of being able to secure that pipeline? How do we do a better job of having those teams interact with each other? Yeah, so first is, of course, just realizing, right, that this is happening, (laughs) Um, that the CICD is a new way of software development, which is highly agile, that there are two very important personas here, the developers who, for application security, have to do 70% of the work because security cannot fix issues for them. All security can do is bring their level of expertise, uh, broader knowledge about security to prioritize issues. Um, So first and foremost, as, as I'm just describing, hopefully you're getting the sense that we need a platform that allows this collaboration to exist uh, between these two parties. Then the second thing is collaboration is all great, but if it is working against the very requirements of a particular team, that's not going to get adopted. So that's the second set of attributes that we have to look for. 
uh, we have to design for, which is developers moving fast. Feature functionality drives revenue. So that will always be the primary driver for every organization. So how in this fast-paced CICD can we insert security, which requires novel technologies? Unfortunately, we are still using application security tools that are at least 15 years old. Mm-hmm. They were developed for a completely different era. So we need newer solutions, newer technologies that leverage state-of-the-art um, innovation to deliver security very quickly and very efficiently within the CI/CD pipeline so, that, so as not to disrupt it. That's Manish Gupta from Shift Left. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear the full interview, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Josh Ray. He's a managing director and global cyber defense lead at Accenture Security. Josh, always great to have you back. Uh, I want to touch today on something that I know is near and dear to your heart, and that's community service, and particularly when it comes to uh, spreading around your expertise with cybersecurity. Why is this something that it's worth spending your time on? Why is this important to you? Yeah, Dave, thanks Thanks for the question, and thanks for having me back. And you know, this is actually something I was talking to uh, Sean Duffy, who looks after our uh, advanced attack and readiness operations um, earlier today, actually. And we were just discussing how fortunate we are to really be in a profession that has a strong sense of mission um, and also really values service to community. When I think about how cool it is that, you know, we wake up every single day to try to make the world a safer place and fight bad guys. I mean, it's it's something that, you know, really, I think the whole community can can take um, take notice of and, and really appreciate uh, and this is especially true when you're talking about vulnerability research. I mean, this is a special community um, that has a massive amounts of, of passion for what they do uh, and are really incredibly altruistic. Um, so when we look at what the security research and the vulnerability research uh, folks have done over the last 10 years, they've really been at the forefront of this notion of giving back to the community and, and sharing their research. Yeah, it really strikes me that there's a sense, as you say, of collaboration. That, uh, that every, there's there's an industry wide recognition that overall, the, the more information we're able to share and get out there, the better off and safer we'll all be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just you know, thinking about it as the right thing to do, right? And and just by example, over the past couple of years, our own security researchers um, who, who operate in this space have, I think, disclosed something over. 200 vulnerabilities to product companies. And this is not something that 
they were told to do. Uh, they did it because they were pursuing their passion and really because they love doing it. And I think as companies, we really need to start to embrace this notion of being altruistic and giving back to the community and rewarding the behavior of these researchers um, more than just kind of giving them recognition and, and figure out how do we actually make sure that we're really fostering this talent in the community. Well, let's dig into that. I mean, as someone who is in a leadership position, how do you foster that amongst the people of your team? How do you how do you show them that this is uh, something that you support them spending their time on? Yeah, I, I think it's one of these things where you have to continuously challenge them and make sure that they have interesting things to do, right? They don't want to just solve the, the, the regular problems. They want to solve problems that are incredibly difficult. And, and if somebody tells them it's impossible, um, they're even more interested, right? So making sure that they have the hardest problems to solve and making sure that they know that they are directly contributing to really making the internet a safer place. What if somebody comes to you and says, you know, Josh, I, I have a hunch on something and this might not lead anywhere, but, you know, I, I have a feeling this is a pathway that, that I should go down. Is, is that the kind of thing that you would support? Yeah, I think absolutely. And I mean, you know, as we've got folks that have kind of now the second and third generation of uh, security leaders kind of come up in this space, I think that's kind of a realization that, you know, we've come, we have to give these folks time to breathe and kind of think um, because it's that level of creativity that's going to not only be good for business and their clients, but it's going to help retain that talent and help them be better as professionals as well. Hmm. All right. Well, Josh Ray, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. If you're looking for something to do this weekend, take a few moments and check out Research Saturday and my conversation with Jen Miller Osborne from Palo Alto Networks Unit 42. We're going to be discussing their most recent ransomware threat report. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Carrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.
And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 